This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs.
Thank you very much. So, um, I have to let you know, my better half tonight, Elizabeth, is not well. She's sick. So, um, we're all very disappointed, particularly me, because she really brings out a lot of this music with her beautiful voice. But she wishes you well. In all her career, she says it's only the second time that she's had to miss a concert. It might be that we just uh, only... um, just came back from working in Croatia <laughs> like uh, 36 hours ago. So I caught up with her and so she was just not feeling well, so she apologizes. Anyhow, not that these guys are kahak the labor as we say in Yiddish or chop liver. Um, on my far right, all the way from New York City, but he hails from San Francisco, Norbert Stachel on Reed tonight. And just a little bit farther east, Hailing just came in last night, all the way from Prague, Petr Dvorsky. And next to me, my buddy that I've known and played for, for about 30 years now, all the way also from New York, but family from the Bonat region of Serbia, Romania, Peter Stan. So we opened with two pieces in our, our recent... Uh, album called uh, The Wolf and the Lamb Live at the Shach. So um, our label, uh, Naxos Ark, said we'd like to have you record another album. And I said, yeah, I have an idea. Would you be willing to, um, would you entertain this idea that we do a live concert in this town of Holoshov, Czech Republic, which is in the province of Moravia, if you're a good phenogeography uh, the capital of Bohemia, if I haven't lost you, is Prague. Then there's the state, province of Moravia, and the capital is Brno. If you heard of it. Uh, it was known as Brun by the Germans, but it's Brno, B-R-N-O. And a small little village, a little town um, that once had a Jewish population, community, has... What? Right? Oh, good wine, Petrina. Good wine, yes, good wine there. Um, they have a synagogue, and it's just a museum. But Petr and I and another wonderful uh, accordionist who couldn't make it now, uh, who played also with Peter, Sasha Yasinski, um, we did a concert and I was amazed by the acoustics. Uh, this uh, medieval the synagogue built in, originally built in the, um, well, 15th century. And uh, it was just amazing. So they said, we love this idea. So we, we all went there last year um, and it was the first night we played with a live audience, but we realized it's not so easy to play in such a place that has such great acoustics because the vibe... So I would play a note, and it hit Norbert, you know, four seconds later. The the reverb was like, whoa, you know. So the next day we also played, but we, we, we it was just us playing. But anyway, the combination, we put this album together. So the first tune we played was a tune I called Pinsk Floyd. And... Uh, Pinsk is where my um, ancestry on, on my father's side, southern, just south of Pinsk. And I wrote this when I was in Prague some years ago. And, um, but actually, I was influenced by, um, I was in Pinsk in Belarus. That's where it is today. And uh, I saw a street musician playing the hurdy-gurdy, and he had a little, uh, little couple bars that sounded like this. So I, I borrowed it, so to speak. Um, and then changed it up, he was playing in 4-4, four, four, and if you heard of that, it was a bit different rhythm, it was an 11, 11-8. Um, 
And if you know how to do folk dancing, Balkan, then you have no problem. If, if not, then you have two left feet. It's not easy to dance in 11. So that was that piece. And the second piece is this, was um, is typical dance piece that Jews played and Roma played, everybody, Ukrainians played, the Poles played, called the Skochna, a jump dance, jumping, and uh, hop dance. And so this was a piece of music that... Um, had never been recorded. It was sheet music um, that I was given. I was uh, living in New York City uh, in the 80s, and I was visiting a, an old Jewish man in Borough Park, Brooklyn. I would visit him twice a month because his ancestry came from the same town as where my grandparents come. So we, he felt that kind of kinship, right? And uh, But basically, he just wanted to talk. And... Um, we would talk about different things. He wanted to know about my travels and violin and family and, and you know, about my, you know, as he said, my mishpocha, my Jewish family from the old country as well as Detroit. And after many months, he says, oh, um, I'd like to show you something. Can you go down, go underneath my bed and pull out this old box? So, I, you know, climbing through cobwebs and 30 years of dust, I pull out this old box and I had a string. But, you know, when you pull a string and it goes, poof. <laughs> There's no string. It was just the remnants of a string because uh, it was so old and uh, rotted. And I open it up, and I see this yellowed notes. You can imagine, right? As a musician, like, whoa, where's this from? And he says, this was my gig book. And he actually used the word gig, kind of like winked at me like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of hip. I know some of those words. <laughs> and um, your gig book from where? He says, when I lived in Belarus, where I was Russia. Uh, at that time, but Baylor was today, and he his gig book. So this these were tunes that he played with his band from 1906 to 1921. So this was a tune, and um, next year I'm putting out all these tunes in a big book coming out, uh, being published out of Israel, uh, of these tunes that have never seen the light of day. So it'd be kind of exciting. So. So the idea of the album was this: so you say, okay, Jewish music, klezmer, I know it's East European, has this interesting feel. Um, what I wanted to do is to sh- play tunes from other regions. And they might say, well, what makes it Jewish? Well, Jewish, if you're a good musician, and I say that about anybody here, if you have good ears, you open them to any music you hear. You borrow, you know. And Jewish musicians weren't only playing for Jews. They would be very poor. They were already poor. They'd, even be, they'd really be struggling. They played for the non-Jews. And the non-Jews said, we like your Jewish music, but we also want to hear our tunes. And so they back and forth. And um, so you'll hear tunes from Central and Eastern Europe as well as the Balkans. So this tune comes from Bukovina, which is in Ukraine today, from a small town called Vizhnitz. Very simple melody. So it's all, it's very simple melody, all about the improvisation. And yes, did people uh, do improvisation before the word J-A-Z-Z? Absolutely. (laughs) It's old, right? Because we all have imaginations, right? Even cavemen had imagination. That's what what is imagination? Imagining. You're improving right then.
this is the melody that sounds Jewish, right? Sounds like it's been written by Sheldon Harnick, one of the guys who wrote uh, Fiddler on the Roof, right? Has that feel. So when he wrote his original music, it wasn't so original. He was hearing what these cats were playing 200 years before him.
So as we do in intersections, and I've been so, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, not only happy, but honored that uh, particularly to Andrew, and I'm really grateful to Andrew Waltz, who gave me the opportunity to uh, curate this wonderful series this whole year. Um, one of the things we'd like to do is just ask a couple of musicians a question, because sometimes uh, not everything is on Wikipedia. So I'll ask, uh, we'll get uh, three short questions, and hopefully the answers will be short, too. So Norbert Stachel, um, uh, God, I know so much about it. So that's a good question um, that they did. Um, uh, oh, here's a man who plays, you play many reed instruments. As I used to say, if it's something that has a hole in it, he can make music out of it, literally. One time we were in a recording session. He took off the end of the, you took off the headpiece of the clarinet, and you're blowing it sideways. I was going, what? I was like going, what is he playing in there? And I look, he, he took off the mouthpiece. He's like blowing it sideways. So um, when you're playing your different instruments, do you feel something different? And, you know, as a musician, I mean, you know, is, is your soul, you know, you're... Because yes, you're musical, but is there does one reed instrument mean feel different than another one, perhaps when you're playing it? So these are different instruments, and they all function different mechanically, and they blow differently, and use a different blowing technique and a different fingering te technique, even though they are cro cross related, because you're going from high to low, you're closing off holes of the tube. So when ho holes are open, it's high. As you close the holes, it goes down in pitch. You can put holes in a straw and do the same thing and kind of make, make a little noise out of it. So for me, and I think most people that play the different instruments, it's kind of like um, if you f feel a different sound in your head and you want to, a very, very easy example is if you want to play something with a low sound, you might pick an instrument that has a lower sound, like a tenor saxophone is lower than an alto saxophone or a soprano sax. And it, it, it sounds good for ballads or a more aggressive, guttural kind of sound. The flute is a, a lighter, breathier, airier sound that you might want to play for a, something softer or a different feeling. But, but also in different kinds of music, some music lends itself to have a saxophone fit more than a clarinet or a flute, and vice versa. You know. And also as tools, like in, on a golf course, you might need one particular club to hit the ball a certain way, and then you have to switch to a different club depending on the distance and the speed. So it's sort of like that, too, or, or a surgeon, you know, scalpel, sponge. You know? <laughs> I don't know. I, don't want, I, can, I can talk forever. But. You do surgeries? Any questions about that? Don't let me operate on you. Do you do surgeries on your instruments? I do little surgeries at home when, when, the, when the time is needed, if That's they need right. adjustments. Oh, yes, he does. So, Petter, yeah. what, how did you choose the contrabass? So, that's the instrument that you don't need to carry. <laughs> it's done like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I have to bring it, so that's another story. <laughs> But whatever, I think uh, at the beginning I was uh, happy to play with a band on an electric bass. And then I switched into acoustic bass because I like it more because of that, the, the, the acoustic sound, which helps to bring 
the music of the band. And uh, the thing is that if, if there is a good bass sound, then whatever comes up yeah. sounds good also. So I try to make bands sound good. <laughs> That's the thing. Well, sometimes it happens, sometimes not. <laughs> And Peter, how did you start? What's the tradition of the accordion in your family? Why the accordion? Why not the violin or the bass or clarinet? Well, I guess... Speak in your mic. I guess because my dad started playing the accordion. Uh, That's how uh, we grew up. My dad played the accordion. Then I started playing... Well, actually, my dad teach my, my two brothers and me to play the accordion. So it was kind of scary, three of us playing the accordion and my dad. <laughs> Four accordions in the house? Yeah. How did your mom survive? <laughs> well, my mom's not around no more. So, <laughs> so I don't know if that done it, but uh, yeah. So uh, three brothers playing the accordion and my dad, and my dad was kind of old school. What does that mean? Uh, old he was school. like very strict. He, he would like, I remember my older brother, he would put him in the room and say, you have to practice uh, whatever time, I would goof off. <laughs> and uh, one more brother, he he played the accordion. And actually, at age when we were, we were young, like twelve, he took us with him to perform at restaurants just to get the experience. And I have to say, it was one of my best experiences learning music, like playing on stage. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes I made mistakes. Yeah, I always do, but. Uh, <laughs> It was one of my best experiences, learning on the job. Yeah, that's great. And now my son plays, too. Oh. <laughs> great, Peter. That's it. So, as I said, all kinds of music. So, here's a, here's a piece from the Baltics uh, from a group of people called the Livonians. And you probably haven't heard them. They're basically almost extinct as a separate group. They have the, the language. They come from... As I said, the Baltic countries, the Baltic states, uh, particularly Latvia, but they were in the Kurland, if you know the Kurland, C-O-U-R-L-A-N-D. Actually, many Jewish families had the last name Kur, Kurland, K-U-R-L-A-N-D, and where they were from, Kurland, the Kurland. So it starts from the Baltic coast, uh, um, the western coast in Latvia and goes down into Lithuania. And a small uh, group called the Livonians most likely from Central Asia, as many groups came from, bringing their interesting language, not, uh, not um, English-based or Germanic-based or Latin-based, nothing. It was based out of languages east of the, uh, of the Ural Mountains, um, Asiatic, Mongolian. And so one might say, well, why would you include this on, in, in a Jewish music album? Because Jews who lived in the Kurland, musicians would hear these melodies and say, oh, I like it. I'm going to learn. So this is a folk melody that I listened to and then arranged and added some of my own aspects. Livonia. And you'll hear very different from the very last melody.
Statue Petter.
Now, that one I did not find. I pulled that out of my head. That's one I wrote. But what makes it um, connected to the album was the vocals um, on the album. Uh, so it's called Lullaby from Eisenstein. So I found this poem in Burgerlandish Yiddish. It's extinct. It, no one speaks it anymore. Um, most likely, we don't know for sure, but most likely Yiddish didn't start from the east, like in Ukraine, Poland, and then go west. It started in the west and went east. Most likely, philologists, linguists believe in the Rhine region, Strasbourg, Alsace-Lorraine region. And um, eventually, he made it into eastern Austria. And this dialect was spoken that no one speaks anymore. And I found this old poem. And um, so I said it to this and purposely said it to something much more like uh, French Impressionistic, just because I liked it. But the, but the Burgerlande Yiddish is very nice to hear. Oh, yeah. Mr. Guggenheim, this piece is for you. But we'll do it differently. You've heard it many times, but we'll do it a little different just to change things up. See what's in your hand. Let's say, mix something up. Oh. Little piccolo. Yeah, from one pick to another.
Peter Stan. Peter Stan. Yeah, Peter. Let me hear some. No, keep it going for you, Peter. I hope. Let's hear some bowl. Let me hear some Arco. Thank you. 
Norbert Stachel, Petter Dorsey, Peter Stan.
So last two melodies we'll play before we end the evening. Um, so that was a tango, right? A tango, we recognize that. Argentina, though rhythms originally from Western Africa. Um, what's interesting about the tango is it comes to Europe. It, it came to Europe um, different ways, but one of the ways it came to Central Europe, because it was in France, but it was brought to Poland. You know, in Poland, tangos were huge in the 20s and 30s. Jewish musicians couldn't find work in the Depression, and they went to Argentina and heard songs. First of all, they said, oh, the lyrics are sad, like a lot of our lyrics about loss and forlorn and love that we missed and so forth, um, often in minor keys, not always, but often in minor keys. So it, it, it was, to their ears, they, uh, it wasn't something so different, so foreign. And, um, and many of them returned to Eastern Europe, particularly to Poland, and it spread. Um, of course, one of the most famous purveyors of, of uh, tango and then took it, stretched it, was, of course, the great uh, bandonian player, uh, Astor Piazzolla. And, right, exactly. And, um, and that, that rhythm, well, you know what? That is the Bulgar. He heard that. He was 11 years old. His father took him out to Brooklyn, and next door were Jewish musicians, and he heard that rhythm. And he took the, of course, he put the notes. Boom, boom, doom, doom. Oh, I didn't know Pete had that. Sing it, Pete, sing it, Pete. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's great. But you get the example? See that rhythm? That rhythm was actually a Bulgar, was a Jewish rhythm from Eastern Europe that he said, ah, I like it with already the tango. And he combined the two and created that sort of what we call new tango. But anyhow, uh, just so you let you know. So here's a piece. This is, um, I had the great opportunity in 1993 to meet Imre Chenke. Imre Chenke was one of the last living students of Bela Bartok. And, um, and I had the great fortune of meeting him. Living in a beautiful home. If you've ever been to Budapest, any of you raise your hand you've been to Budapest? Are you familiar with the, the Rodeo Drive of Budapest? It's the Vatsiutsa, right? V-A-C-I. You have to have a lot of bucks, a lot of Hungarian foreigns, a lot of euros to live there. Fancy uh, shops and just a big boulevard, very beautiful. So he had a very nice pad, so to speak, you know, condo, so to speak, uh, apartment. Beautiful views of the Danube. And we talked for several hours. He spoke a very beautiful English. I spoke... I know like 30 words of Hungarian. It's a really, but they say it's the language of heaven. Magyar, of all languages. Why? Because it takes an eternity to learn. <laughs> Anyhow, he, um, he, unbeknownst to me, he had his assistant go out and come back and bring me a package of Xerox music. I said, what, what's this? He says, you know, I've been talking to you I see you're very sincere about your work. You learned a lot. You taught me some things. We, he uh, I, you played the music, played your violin. So I have some field research that I did that's never been published. And I will give you a copy of it. As long as you always give, you know, give me credit. And, and, but spread it. At the point of music is not to save it, right? It's, it's precious. It's mine. And, uh, no, it's to spread to people living today into the next generation. So this tune on our CD, which is out there, you're certainly welcome if you have the, if you're still kind of lo-fi and you do CDs. If not, 
all the stuff you heard tonight is on whatever your music uh, that you download, Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, and there's many more that I don't even know because I, I get half a cent every time they, you know, that's about it. Um, but you can listen to it. And so this tune is the first time it was recorded, and it was really interesting. And how did he learn? He says, Maestro Bartok would come. He came in. So this was the master class. You've already had a high level, right? You're going for your PhD, so to speak. You're at a high level. And he would walk into the classroom. Of course, everyone, what, in Europe, you stand up. You know, you don't sit down, you know. None of the students at San Diego State stand up for me when I'm walking to class. <laughs> if anything, they sit, they sit down. So um, you stand up. And Maestro said, as Imre was relaying the story, says, he says, come with me today, students. And they walked with him. He walked down. They walked to the train station. He bought the tickets. It was a master class. So it was all of eight, nine students. And they didn't say a word. He says, Maestro has a plan. We will follow him. This is Bartok, who's already world famous. And uh, they take the train ride 30 minutes outside of town. Then they walk another 15 minutes, and they come to a field. And he says, make yourself comfortable. Find a place to sit. And this will be your classroom for the next seven days. We will come back and forth. And no, and the maestro, okay, nice outdoors. Maybe he wants to lecture in the beautiful, beautiful fall sunshine of Hungary. And he says, no, I am not the teacher. I am also the student this week. Your teacher is coming now. Can you hear him? No. Really? Listen. And all of a sudden, they hear this group of musicians, Roma musicians coming to them, playing incredible music. And what their job was is to transcribe note for note every little thing they did, not just the notes, but all the ornamentation is the word. And, and that's what Bela Bartok did. So anyhow, having said that, I probably will not play the third as great as them, but this is the piece from Imre Chenge's uh, student days as a student of Bela Bartok. Song from Bihar. Bihar is a county eastern Hungary and, and also western Transylvania, Romania.
Norbert Stetchel. Norbert on those many wind instruments. Petr Dvorsky all the way from Prague. Yeah, Petra, yep. Peter Stan, all the way from Brooklyn and Queens. <laughs> and I'm just from Mission Hills. Yale Strong is my name. So we'll play, can I indulge you? Do we have like, do you have enough, as we say in English, Zitzfleisch? You know what that means? Do you have enough? You don't know Yiddish, no. Do you have, can, you, can you have enough on your derriere to give me another three, four minutes? Before, all right. So I'll send this, this will go out to my wife. Who's, who's, uh, who, uh, um, you'll have to come here. Some of you have heard her. Have you heard Elizabeth sing, some of you? Yeah. That great contralto. So um, we're going to end on a tune, Svailava. This is a tune. Um, uh, so with, uh, having not met uh, Maestro Imre Chenki and then um, and knowing the story of Bar- Bartok, um, I, had, I was in a village in the Carpathian Mountains in the Ukraine, and uh, doing this field research, and uh, a man has said, go to this village, go to this train stop and wait, and a man, a Roma gentleman, will come uh, and, and uh, take you to his home, and, you'll, uh, and he'll play some old Jewish tunes. You might say, so why did you meet the Roma so much? And, and in many of the villages and towns, there are no more Jews, the sad fate of the Holocaust. And then those who did survive, most did not want to stay. Uh, so they emigrated whether they were going to uh, eventually Israel or to Western Europe or South America and even to the United States. Uh, but they knew the music. And what's interesting is uh, I met Jews who were multi, obviously speaking, let's say, Ukrainian or Polish or uh, Lithuanian, Belarusian. Uh, and they also spoke Romani, the musicians, because he said, if I'm, I'm playing with the Romani band, I want to understand what they're saying, and vice versa. Roma musicians who spoke, who spoke a fluent Yiddish. And my very first lesson many decades ago, my very first lesson that brings me to this stage was not from a Jew, it was from a Roma musician in uh, what they called refuseniks, you know, in the, in the Soviet area. There were Jews who could not get out, and they were tried, and they said, no, you're now on the list of the refuseniks, and you will never leave this country. And uh, the, she opened her house to me, Mrs. Lederman, I can still see her now, and she played some Jewish music, and I saw that's very nice, but it's not, I said, oh, I know what you, I know, I played the classic stuff, you don't want that, that's, you know, like Broadway, you don't want that. I said, no, I want some of the, the stuff that I've never heard. She says, I'll bring you the maestro. And in comes this man, and his fingers are each like the thickness of three of mine. I, and I couldn't believe it. And he's sitting at the piano, short little guy, five foot four, five foot four this way, five foot four this way. And he gets to the piano and he, and he says, he asked her in Russian, what was my name? And he says, call him Itzik. That's his Jewish name, Yitzchak, Isaac. Itzik, give a kick, give a kick. Romanish, Magar, Moldavish, Ungarish. And he's like, he's like every other eight bars. No, every, every other eight notes, let's say two bars. He's playing the same melody, but in a different style. And he would say, take a look, take a look. And then at the end, he'd say, do you understand? I said, no, hell no, hell no, do I don't understand. And then he, he gave me a lesson. So I'll play this tune. So I learned this from a man who taught me on the cello. And I said, but how did he, he was one, he was, I went like on the train station and I hear nobody and all of a sudden I hear somebody. I said, wait a minute, that's a cello. How can a cello be getting louder as it's coming near? Cello has an end bin, like a bass. What's he doing? 
And this guy, he figured out how to do it. He strapped the cello to his stomach with a belt. And he just marched, and he saw me. And I, was, I had been very angry because he was late, but then the anger, I just started laughing, and he just went like this, follow him. So this is the tune he taught me. So often they would do in the Jewish music, start off a little, uh, little um, oh, kind of almost like a cadenza, only in the beginning.
Camacho, Petra Dvorsky, Peter Stan. My name is Yale. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.